not so fond of the way I get around these days flying, what with the dangers of it any time and hijacking nobody knows when. It's not an enticing prospect. I enjoyed train riding, but I never did like to be sealed up in a capsule and hurled through the air 600 miles an hour and didn't know whether I'd ever get there or not. You are the prisoner of that apparatus when they put you in it. There's not a blessed thing on earth you can do about it, but hope to get Lord will get you to the next place. And uh, I need a lot of help living in motels. It's not the picnic some of you think it is. You say, oh, if I just live in motels, that'd be great. Friend, you ought to try it uh, for a few weeks. Uh, it's, 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 it's different from home. It's, it's a home away from home, they say, but uh, I've never been able to make myself too much at home in that regard. Uh, we're living in such, such dangerous times. You never know who's next door to you. I remember the night that a Marine who was dead drunk tried to bust the door down and get in, and I called down for the watchman, to get a guard, to come up, and he wasn't trying to get in my room at all. He thought it was his buddy's room, but he didn't know daylight from dark anyhow. And no telling what he might have done if he had got in there. So you have a wonderful time like that. Uh, <laughs> when I was growing up on the farm, uh, we never even locked the door at the old house while we went to meeting that night up the road. Nobody going to break in. Everything is safe. Now I was in a motel the other day, had the telephone screwed to the table. I tell you, it's a wonderful time. So remember me, you see what I've got before me. But thank God, more importantly, I have the Lord with me, and that's what makes the difference. Hey, that doesn't mean that you won't have accidents and that you won't have trouble. A lot of things we don't understand about the providence of God. I think about my preacher friend from Waterloo, Iowa, P.B. Chenault, a wonderful preacher. He and his wife and the two babies drove through to Fort Worth or Dallas for a meeting with another preacher. And on the way back, they first asked God for journeying mercies, and then a few miles down the road stopped again and asked for journeying mercies. And then a drunken driver ran into him and killed him and left the wife and the two babies. You don't put that together, you know, easily with the nice little remarks and explanations. I don't know. I do know that a fine, I think I've told this before, but I like to tell it because it illustrates the principle. I was staying in Waterloo in the home of a wonderful Christian man who never had married, and some years later he married me, you know, and they all went to Africa as missionaries taking the babies who'd grown up quite a bit by then. Well, that's one way that worked out, but uh, you never know what's ahead. And you don't, it's not insurance against accidents or cancer or anything else to commit things to God. But uh, we have not because we ask not, and sometimes we could get things we don't get because we say, well, things are going to happen just like they're going to happen. I know that isn't true either. You never know when God's going to intervene in a special way. So put your name in the pot anyway. <laughs> Get your name before the Father, and he is your Father, and he, he wants to hear you. The last book of the Bible was written by a lonely old preacher in exile on a desolate island surrounded by a surging sea. John, the last of the apostles, 
was in exile on Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. All the other apostles were with the Lord. And John might well have asked, is this all I get for being a soldier of the cross and a follower of the Lamb? It looked like persecution, but it was really promotion because God rolled back the curtain and revealed the greatest futurama of all time uh, while that exile had a chance to look at it. That's something to see. You know, you talk about a, a, a show. God put one on there for John. And it's worth being in exile on Patmos to see all he saw when God made that revelation. And the vision reached its climax when John beheld the new heaven and the new earth. And we read, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. I believe that's Revelation 21, 1. And there was no more sea. And what does that mean? This has intrigued me a good deal. No more sea. Uh, there's a lot of ocean in the book of Revelation. You hear the roar of the waves all the way through the apocalypse. Sea of glass mingled with fire. The star called Wormwood fell into the sea. The beast rose out of the sea. The great angel throws a mighty stone into the sea. John hears the singing of the multitude of the redeemed like the voice of many waters. And he must have been awfully lonely those years sitting out there on that rock out there in the sea. Nothing to look at but the sea. And all the others were gone. And then, maybe when his patience was almost exhausted and he was at his lowest mark, Jesus came. John had seen him in the flesh. He'd seen him in his resurrection body but he had never seen him glorified. That's three ways that Jesus appeared in before John. And you haven't seen Jesus either. And, but John saw him in these three marvelous ways. And the first time, of course, he walked about with him for three years. And the second time, he saw him with that resurrection. But he could go through doors without opening them. And I, I, I'm fascinated by what kind of a body that must have been. But the last time it knocked him out. When he saw him glorified, he dropped like a dead man. And if you and I could get one little glimpse of the glorified Christ some night at prayer meeting, <laughs> I don't know what had happened to us. It might accidentally wake some of us up. And that would be well worth it. But uh, uh, he dropped as a dead man and Jesus came over and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. There's only one thing that Jesus Christ ever was. He, he's not in the was area now. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He never was in any sense but one. He was dead. Thank God for our sins. But he rose. And between the eternity of yesterday, which never had a beginning, and the eternity of tomorrow, which will never have an ending, stands Jesus Christ the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So when he said to John, don't be afraid. I was here before there ever was anything to be scared of, and I'll be here after everything you're afraid of is gone. So don't be afraid. Well, it is worth it to have a revelation 
like that. I am he that liveth and was dead. And there was no more sea. What does that mean? Well, and when, he, when that chapter came on the screen and the new Jerusalem appeared and there's no more sea, <laughs> John had enjoyed it all, but I think when he got to that, he said, Lord, that's the best thing you said yet. No more sea. I've been sitting here in the sea in the sea for all these years. And that's the best thing you said. I think he went into a hallelujah over that. Well, what does it mean, beloved? What is the symbolism of this figure? Well, for one thing, the sea is a symbol of mystery. Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thy judgments are a mighty deed. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now remember that the Jews were not sailors. The Jews were landlubbers, and they are to this day. Not seafarers. There aren't any seas except the Mediterranean on one side of Israel over there. But they don't have any seas. They have the, uh, we call it the Sea of Galilee. It's only a lake. When they started out from Egypt for the Promised Land, the first thing that got in the way was the sea. And they've never had much dealings with seas. To the Jew, it stood for awesome mystery and awful misery. And so he preferred the valleys and the mountains and green pastures and still waters. And after all the centuries, not only to the Jew, but all the rest of us, the ocean is still a symbol of something that we don't... You, you don't look at it long, but what you have some pretty serious folks, I, I think. When I meet one of these masters of omniscience, who has life's mysteries all analyzed and cataloged and correlated and all his eyes dotted and all his teeth closed, who has everything tucked away in cubby holes in his little brain and can pour out all kinds of explanations for everything, he's no help to me because there's a lot of mystery in this old world. I still see through a glass, the original here says, as in an enigma, the, the actual word from uh, our word enigma, that's what it is in the Greek. And uh, this life and this world, the whole business is an enigma. We live in the wreck of a world that's been spoiled by sin. A world where strange and terrible things that don't make sense happen every day. And Christians are not immune to or exempt from accidents and disease and heartbreak and disappointment and tragedy. And there are no smug answers. And much of it we simply cannot understand, and we have to postpone it till we have more light on the subject. We table it for future reference. Uh, I have some items like that on my list. Some of you probably have some on your list too, and you can't explain it. In spite of how much you may have traveled and explored it, or how much has been written about it, what a mystery the sea still is. What if we could drain it dry? You ever thought what would happen if you could uh, drain all the water out of the ocean? You'd have another world there. What continents would show up? And uh, craters and canyons and mountains and valleys. Think of all the dead people that lie in it. It's a world of mystery. It surrounds us buried in water. When the weather gets better, they're going to go try to find the Titanic this year. They had a glimpse of it, and they say it 
corresponds to the measurements, but it was way, way, way down there. But they're going to bring some of the latest stuff. Go down there. They think there are treasures in it, and certainly those rich folks left a lot of very valuable treasures. But uh, anyhow, all kinds of things in that sea. It's a symbol of mystery we call life. We're so ignorant. We know so little. And there's only the tip of the iceberg on, on the surface. There's so many knots that we can't untie, but one of these days that mystery's going to clear up and there won't be any more seed. And dying itself is going to answer more riddles and solve more problems in five minutes than we've unraveled all our lifetime. Have you ever thought about it? Five minutes after you're dead, you will know more about a lot of things that cover all eternity than you've ever even guessed at. I've often thought about my dear one that well, she hadn't been in heaven but a little bit because she knew more about all these things I've pondered about and read the Bible about and wondered about. And so it is with yours if they're with the Lord. And then uh, the sea is the symbol of evil. Not only of the mystery but of the misery. The wicked are like the troubled sea whose waters cast out mire and dirt. That's Isaiah uh, 57 and 20. We live in a boiling ocean of evil. Arnold Toynbee says that the more he studies about that, about the two world wars that Germany started, said, uh, and especially Hitler, he said, I, I just can't understand how a nation as educated as Germany, as highbrow as Germany, the land of uh, Martin Luther and the land of Beethoven, the land of such high intelligence should be so dumb as to turn over their boys and turn over their money and turn over their government everything to that wild maniac whose real name was Schickelgruber no wonder they changed it I don't blame him for that and he almost wrecked the world with it and Toynbee arrived at this conclusion and he said Civilization is only a thin veneer covering a boiling tumult of evil waiting to burst out at any time. We think we're smart. I sat in Jacksonville, I remember, during the time the last batch of astronauts went up, watched it on the TV in the corner, looked out window of my room into a park that I didn't dare walk in, wasn't safe smart enough to walk on the moon and not safe enough to walk in the park. That's America tonight. I'm supposed to talk Thursday night next week at the university across the street from me, UNCG, to the Baptists, some of the Baptist students over there. And I'm not going unless they come for me. Or bring me back and bring me back. Some of the students have been assaulted over there of old places. I'm not. I don't even go to church at night two blocks away from if I have to walk. You call that progress? We are surrounded with evil. My soul in sad exile was out on life's sea, so burdened with sin and distress. Thank God if you can anchor your soul in a haven of rest to sail the wide seas no more. The tempest may sweep over the wild stormy deep. In Jesus I'm safe evermore. These 
guys are strolling the streets, these maniacs, you catch them. There's not room in the jails to put all these criminals if you could get them. And you don't usually punish them anyhow. Give them a slap on the wrist. You heard the other day where one tried to break in a home and a very bold old lady got out her gun and stood him at bay and managed to call for the police and they got him. And they didn't do much with him, but they arrested her for firing firearms in a house. I don't know sometimes just, just where I'm at down here. Now the devil stirred up a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Dr. Clyde Francisco of Louisville Seminary was with me in a conference one time. I'll never forget the story that he told. I may have told it here. Jesus, the Son of God, was taking a nap. I like these little things the Bible tells about Jesus. He got tired at Jacob's house. Never was sick, but he got tired, took naps. And here came this storm. They can have terrible storms on that little so-called Sea of Galilee. And they woke him up. Don't you care that we perish? He got up and said, Oh, ye of little faith. Then he said, Be quiet. And the thing uh, just went to nothing in a minute. And it looked like a mirror across that lake. And those disciples said, What manner of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obeyed him. Well, Dr. Francisco said, There's a deeper thing in that story. God gave the first Adam dominion over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea. But he did not give him dominion over two things, wind and water. We don't have dominion today over wind and water. We can control them to some extent sometimes, then they control us. The wind blows away our home and the waters flood uh, the entire landscape. But he said the marvelous thing that time was they had the disciples in there who belonged to the first Adam by creation. But he said what the first Adam couldn't do, the last Adam could do. And he was in the boat too. Jesus is the last Adam. And he has all power. No wonder they said <laughs> he can handle anything. And he could. Now, my friends, that did me a lot of good. And I think if you can think about the fact we've got a Lord with us that can control every blessed thing in all creation, you ought to go home tonight with one foot saying amen, the other saying hallelujah, all the way down the street. If you don't, I think you're in a backslidden condition. I think you're in bad shape. This world is a wreck and a ruin because uh, it's a sinful world. But we look for new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. When we are more seen. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. And then it's a symbol of unrest. This world has never been more restless than today. Tranquilizers selling at a record high. There aren't many people today that don't have several kinds of sleeping pills in the cabinet. Can't get along without them, you say. Valium. We've got a generation of Valiumites now all over the country. Mental hospitals are crowded, drugs, alcohol, immorality, broken homes, hearts, lives. There is no peace, saith my Lord, to the wicked. But God's geography for the next heaven, the new heaven and earth, doesn't list any oceans. 
of sin and unrest. There'll be a river of life, thank God. There is a river, our brother sang. There's a river. There's not any seed. There's never, never has a generation invented so many devices and spent so much money trying to make itself comfortable as we have today. We've never had as many gadgets for being comfortable and getting rested. We've never got a more nervous, worn, nervous breakdown generation in all the world than we have today. Your grandmother put you to shame, and in some cases she's still around, and you're going around like this. Exiles on Patmos, surrounded by a sea of unrest, while men cry peace when there is no peace. But more than anything else, the sea is a symbol of separation. The ocean used to keep folks divided an awful lot. Now you can fly over in a few hours. But I used to go down to Hampton DuBose Academy in Florida and I'd stay for a week or so to rest. Wonderful school for missionary children. And when I first went down there, uh, my air travel was in its infancy and trans-ocean, and they knew very little about that if at all. And when those missionaries left their kids after school, they left them for several years. Now you talk about something to twist your heart out of you. That was pretty rough. That old ocean stood as a symbol of separation. And there wasn't much communication either. But my eye on both sides, how, how they must have longed to get across that sea. But you and I are exiles on this earth, cut off by a sea of separation. We're separated from the centuries past. We read about them as close as we can get to it. We're separated from the saints of, and the great preachers of the past. Oh, my father used to read Spurgeon, Spurgeon, Spurgeon. He'd have given anything if he could have heard Spurgeon. Men and women that I labored with years ago. You see, I, I've been, I remember some of the early conferences uh, back in the 30s. Started my Bible conference work in the 30s. And nearly every one of those fellows that I worked with was gone. My, my. Barnhouse is gone. Dr. Ironside's gone. And I think that Gabeline said he sometimes lay at night and said, Lord, where are they? What's it like? What's it like over there? Some of you, the ones you love most in this world, are over there, I hope. Think of my old dad who always met me at the train when I started out in those early years. First question he asked, how'd you get along? I can't wait to get over there, and he'll ask me that, I think, for the very first thing when I get there. And I'll tell him, pretty well, thank you. And I, I remember, I remember that I was at the Maranatha Bible Conference. And I got a telegram that said, your mother's quite ill. So I made ready in a hurry to go, and Dr. Bob Jones, Sr., put his arm around me, had prayer with me. Before I got home, Mother was gone. But the last thing she said, she stood on her crutches and said to my brother, who's a cripple, as he tried to write, tell Vance to keep up the good fight, for God is with him. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Ah, that's helped me many a time. 
And now the dearest in all the world to me is gone. And right after she passed away, I was meetings in St. Augustine, Florida, right close to the beach, and I could see the breakers every day, watching the breakers on the white caps. And I walked up and down there, I was quite overcome, and I had found myself saying, Dear, how is it over on the other side? What's it like over there? William Jennings Bryan said, Life is a sunlit strip between the companionship of yesterday and the reunion of tomorrow. But best of all, when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer. When I reach the other side and his smile will be the first to welcome me, I shall know him. And redeemed by his side, I shall stand, I shall know him. By the print of the nails in his hand, here's something I venture some of you haven't thought about. In heaven, we'll have our resurrection bodies. They won't have a scar on them. They won't have a mark on them. You got a brand new body. But there will be one person in heaven and one person in all eternity who still has scars. And that'll be Jesus. Because his resurrection body has still had the scars. Thomas saw them. I think he's going to keep them for all eternity. I don't like the uh, tears, uh, and I've shed more in the last few years than ever, but uh, I read that over there all right's taken care of. No darkness, no night there. No clouds, land of unclouded day. No pain, neither any more pain. No death, nobody ever dies over there. No sorrow, nothing to cry about. No separation, no more seed. We're exiles. And today, prosperous churches and Christians and preachers, we, we, don't, uh, we don't get interested in the book of Revelation like we ought to. Some of them do just argue about it, but I don't get much out of some of these uh, approaches to Revelation. I know there are a lot of things that nobody understands fully. There's a plenty, plenty in that that we do understand enough of it ought to do more to us than it does. And when the dark days come, the loved ones go and adversity sets in. It'll help you a lot if you're well posted on that old book. America may be entering serious trouble. I'm afraid the professing church is. They say, well, you for pre or post-tribulation. I'm not, I'm not arguing about that. Uh, the saints are different on that. I think we have a lot of tribulation before the great tribulation is entirely possible. Time of great trouble anyway. Some of us believe we're in the last days. I think so, but I don't know. And some of these exiles on Patmos are uh, not very happy today about the outlook, but we ought to lift up our heads for our redemption draws nigh. And we look for a new heaven and a new earth. Do you do much thinking about it? It'll help you to think about it. Because every one of us just a few heartbeats from that country. That's all that keeps you from getting there. Now you've got a little pump on the inside that you can hear it when you're real quiet. And as long as it's operating, you're not going to make that trip. But my soul, and a thousand things besides disease, <laughs> these days it looks like can put you there.
and living on the very verge of eternity like every blessed one of us is here tonight. I marvel at you. We act like you thought we were going to live a thousand years here on this poor little bowl of mud going around and around in space. I'm not that secure, Doctor. Not, not about that. Anything can happen. Are you ready? I think of that little boy who came home from church and said, <clears throat> where is that town called No More? And he said, what are you talking about? He said, No More. Well, I said, I've heard of Biltmore and Ardmore and Baltimore, but never heard of No More. He said, they're singing about a church on my land. I'm on my way to die no more. Must be such a place, going to die no more. Well, that's where we are going. We're not going to die anymore. No more death, no more sorrow, crying, tears, pain, curse. And because there'll be no more seed. As my dear one awaited her going, she couldn't tow, but she could try to ride a little. And she wrote just one thing, my future looks dark. And it did. The best they could have done for her would have left her a vegetable, practically. But God took her, and I think it was all in his providence. But her dear mother, who died at 98, a wonderful Quaker saint, had sent a little birthday card, What looks dark in the future will brighten as we draw near. I've got that in my book, my scrapbook. On one side, Sarah's, my future looks dark. And on the other, Mamo, we called her, her word, what looks dark in the distance, will brighten as we draw near. It's bright for both of them now. Therefore, it's nothing but bright. They don't need the sun. They don't need the lighting system down here because the Lamb is the light. Yeah. But I'm glad there won't be any more seed. God has made ample provision for us in a wonderful way. I get troubled as I go over the land of so many people. We Americans have been, we've heard preaching till, I don't know, we're soaked and saturated, I guess. We've You've heard enough this week that it would have turned some places in this world if they could have understood it. Why, they wouldn't get over it in six months. It's good news that God loves us. We can live forever. <laughs> Suppose you hadn't heard it till tonight. Wouldn't, wouldn't that do something to you? I think so. Let me beg you in God's name, don't ever, as I begged you this morning, don't ever take this thing for granted. I don't care how much you've heard it. It ought to brighten the thing instead of getting you so used to it that we hold home our way through prayer meeting, church, and the rest. I don't want to get in that state. I'm afraid we have... I don't believe you can get these people together without somebody in this place that I seriously doubt whether you're going to heaven. I don't know who you are. But by the law of odds, I, I, 
It'd be most unusual. Everybody would get up. I say, everybody's trusted Jesus, save you enough, they come. And I say, now here we go again, Lord. <clears throat> and I don't get much consolation out of a lot of that. Because it's not showing up in the state of our country today. And if as many people I've seen stand up in churches and say, I'm, I'm for Jesus and so on. Brother, if there's that much of the light of the world here, it ought to be, not be as dark as it is. And if we're the salt of the earth and there's this much salt around the world, it ought to be as rotten as it is. We ought to be having some effect on it. And we have some, but my soul. We ought to be having some effect on this neighborhood, this world today. But the trouble is we're adjusting to them, suiting our lifestyle to their pattern. And that's what spoiled our testimony. They look at us and say, what's the difference? What do I give for some more people to walk down the aisle? And, oh, my, my preacher friend, Ben Hayden of First Presbyterian Church Chattanooga, he's on TV, been trying to get him all week, but for some reason he's not channeled in here. I don't know. I get up at home and turn on at 7 o'clock to get him. I had lunch with him the other day. What a preacher! He said, I'm not a conservative, I'm a radical. He said, every Christian's a radical, or he ought to be. Oh, he doesn't beat around the bush. Great church there. Bought a new skyscraper already up. Been in an office building for years just for Sunday school. They're going places around there. Showed me all over that TV equipment. And I'm a radical. He was a newspaper man and uh, a lawyer till God saved him. And he's not your conventional type of preacher. He takes his text up here and then gets down and walks back and forth in front of the pulpit and that fine Presbyterian church with a mic on talking. But he, 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 he says being a Christian is really something. It's dangerous. It's difficult. You will be a nut to a lot of people and a fool. Paul called himself a fool for Christ's sake. He used to have an old guy go up and down the street and say, I'm a fool for Jesus on a big sign. When he got by the other side of the sign, asked, Whose fool are you? That's a good question. Everybody, the Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. This world today is so smart that they got a lot of fools. I wouldn't have said it, but the Bible says that professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And you, you're a fool either way, so you better be one for Jesus Christ. And they don't. But I, I speak today so much to this elegant, super educated, educated beyond their intelligence, some of them, looks down in smiling condescension on this little country preacher and says, well... That's been out for decades. Oh, how brilliant some of these folks are. Ph.D., which stands for phenomenal dead sometimes. <laughs> and I say, friend, wake up! The only thing that matters in this world is that Jesus Christ has come. And gone, and he's coming back. And if a man walked around 2,000 years ago in a little country no bigger than New Jersey and spent his life there, 
and was God and came with the answer, not an answer, but the answer, you'd think that those of us who say, well, he's the one, and I get convicted myself, I get ashamed of myself that, Lord, do I, am I ashamed to own thy cause and blush to speak thy name? You get with some of these top-of-the-pot intellectuals, and you, you don't, uh, you're not going to just come right out for Jesus, because that wouldn't sound highfalutin. The Bible says the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The Bible calls it the foolishness of God. Oh, what a subject that is. The foolishness of God. It always will be. God didn't set up the coming of Jesus like uh, the me news media would have done it. Had him, why, if you'd have seen Mary and Joseph on their way up to uh, turn in the taxes, you know, we've always had death and taxes, and they were on their way to uh, meet the tax collector just like you have today. Oddest little couple you ever saw. She was expecting a baby that had no earthly father. And Joseph was a human being, and he might have said, he hadn't married her yet, he was betrothed. He might have said, well now, how are we ever going to explain this to this world? But an angel said, don't worry about it. But what a strange way to start it off. The news media would have had him born in a palace and wrapped in regal robes. Instead he was born in a barn and fed to the feed trough. What a way to send the Son of God to earth. And then 30 years a carpenter, one of the lowliest, albeit most wonderful of trades. Is not this the carpenter? And he didn't go to school anywhere. How has this man uh, learned anything? Never been to school. How hath this man knowledge, wisdom, not having learned? That's the way the world still looks at it. He didn't go to Alexandria and Athens and Rome, and uh, he wasn't a guru at some Shangri-La hidden somewhere, handing out platitudes, just traveling country preacher. When he came back with only 40 days to stay on earth, you'd have thought he'd have gone around to these places and said, I'm the one. Nobody saw him but a few disciples. And he took his time to comfort that weeping woman and have supper with those poor Emmaus disciples and help those disciples to catch fish. And I like to think he's, he's interested in my little interests and concerns. But it ought to excite us that we have a Lord like that. 